You are listening to Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music, one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. Today on the podcast, we're fortunate enough to be joined by composer Gabriel Mann. You know Gabriel is the composer of Modern Family, including that show's signature title theme. That's right. In the world of television, he has also composed the music to Rosewood, Dr. Ken, Rectify, Marry Me, Dawn of the Croods, and School of Rock, currently airing on Nickelodeon. Gabriel is also an in-demand record producer and session musician, and his band The Rescues has met great acclaim since its founding in 2008. Fans of Arrested Development will recognize Gabriel as he served as the resident songwriter and vocalist for the show. Along with Rebecca Knubel, Mann also composed the scores to three games in the popular Spyro series. A graduate of the USC scoring program and a great champion of melodic pop music, Gabriel is a delight to talk to and an all-around enthusiastic and hilarious person. Please enjoy our conversation with Gabriel Mann. Gabriel, I think it's safe to say through the last 15 years, you've very much been in demand, not only for writing, but for producing and I know session work. Could you describe the beginnings of your career as a professional musician? Uh, I could describe it. Yes. <laughs> I had a long and sordid journey, just like every other composer type person does. Sure. I wasn't planning on doing it. I started as a, I was pre-med. I also was majoring in music at the same time. So I did those things, and then I, at some point, just sort of dropped the pre-med. And I came to L.A., and I did this USC film scoring program. After the USC film scoring program, which is like an advanced degree kind of thing, right. I then went to work at a million different jobs, all sort of music-related jobs. One was I was like a wiring guy for studios and I would I was in the, I went I would drive to the valley every day and it was Electricia's studio wiring that was like the name <laughs> of the company she was like this amazing bass playing professional studio wiring technician and I would be in there like soldering wires all day long and um, smoking a lot of cigarettes and uh, we would listen to a lot of Black Sabbath and inhaling solder <laughs> That was one of my first gigs. Then around the same time, I was doing a lot of like session singing, like singing in the choir in a movie or like right. on TV shows and stuff like that. At some point in there, I also was an assistant to another composer named David Schwartz. And before that, I was an assistant to a composer named Russ Landau. Russ wound up, after I worked for him, he did all the music for Survivor. Um, oh, okay. David, when I went to work for him, he had just finished, he did like seven years on Northern Exposure. And that, I thought that was really cool. And he had a really beautiful studio. He still has this beautiful studio overlooking the Pacific in the Pacific Palisades. Then I left. I just needed to get out of being somebody's assistant. Sure. And then I was in a singing group with some friends that I met when I was at USC. We started this group called Spiral Mouth, which is sort of like a 
prenatal version of uh, Pentatonix before okay. Pentatonix was like born pretty much did stuff through like guitar pedals and it was like very like heavy oh, cool. duty acapella music then then I basically started making records on on my own and I started doing that when I was working for David he had this beautiful studio and I like got an engineer friend of mine and we like mixed the record at, at his beautiful studio over the summer. This is the and acapella band? This is my solo project now. This is songs that I started to write and was like trying to play shows and do all that stuff. And I did that for a long time. I did that basically from 98 through like 2005. And then I put up my last solo record in like 2007. In 2005, I went on a big tour. I opened for Alanis Morissette as a solo artist in Europe, and I came back from that, and uh, there was no like big uh, parade in my honor <laughs> for some reason. I don't know why. And and David called, and this is after I had finished working for him like you know five years prior, and he said, "Hey, do you want to write some songs with me for this TV show?" And I was like, sure, that sounds great. And that was Arrested Development. And as it is such, so also, and as it is such, such is it unto you. And as it is such, so also, such it is to you. That was sort of like my re-entry. I had sort of left TV. I was like, TV music is stupid, and this job is stupid, and I hate all the people. And I want to go make records and be a rock star. And I did that for a while. And then I came back and David called. I was like, let's do these songs. And I was like, this is great. And suddenly I was earning some actual money and my wife was pregnant. And it was all the stuff was happening that I needed. And I had some income finally sure. <laughs> in music. And that was helpful. And I did that with him. It wasn't like a constant gig. I was I would go in like every couple of weeks and we would talk to Mitch Hurwitz on the phone and he would like, Ooh, you know, cool. sing something crazy over the phone. <laughs> and we'd be like, OK, well, let's try to like figure out what he means. And then we would make something and I would often get to sing it. And that was really fun. So if you watch Arrested Development, you hear me singing a lot. I continued working for David for like several years, like for three years. And he was really my mentor. And I sort of started writing music under him. And uh, then one of the directors of one of the shows that I was working on with him had a pilot. And I wrote the music for that pilot. That pilot was Modern Family. Ah, and no kidding. then you could sort of like fast forward from there to now. Sure. So Modern Family resulted in a lot more work under my own name. And somewhere in the middle of that, I started a band with three other singer-songwriters called The Rescues, and we got a record deal. Actually, that happened right around the same time as Modern Family started. Sure. So, oh, wow. so Modern Family started, and I got this record deal with The Rescues, and we were sort of touring, and I was doing Modern Family at the same time, and we had a second kid. That was also a very hectic time. And actually, I don't know exactly where this falls in, but somewhere before all of that TV stuff, I did a bunch of video games right. uh, with Rebecca Newble. And Rebecca Newble was had been in Spiral Mouth with me, 
and is also a fabulous composer in her own right. And we work together a lot now. She's in the next room over there. And so in this studio now, there are me and Becky and my assistant, Neve, who's in the other room. Well, oh, awesome. you've built up a career in almost two separate industries that have kind of converged in your situation. I'm curious, just musically, who are some of your influences in songwriting and alternatively, some of your influences in scoring? I could tell you the answer to that question. <laughs> the, uh, the songwriting <laughs> side, well, first of all, that is true. I was trying to do both at the same time. I could never like fully commit to songs because, and I loved songs, and I loved writing songs, and I made five albums, and it's all I'm all about it. But I could never just say, you know what, I'm gonna put all my stuff in storage and like go off in a van with my buddies, and right. and I, I just like could never commit to that. So luckily, I did get to do a lot of stuff in that world, in the record side, basically. Uh, and then when the rescues came along, I got to really fulfill my like lifelong dream of having a record deal and all the fancy stuff. And you like fly around and do sure. all the stuff and play all the shows and you know these <laughs> weird random things you do when you're on a label. But I always had like a foot in scoring, right? Because I knew in the back of my mind that like it was so risky the whole record side and I want and I have a very strong desire to have a normal life <laughs> like a normal person right. and and also to like you know be able to support myself and my family that was important to me and it was always important to me that said I was trying to get as much sort of security for myself as possible and live in these two worlds at the same time as much as possible but in terms of influences, I grew up on Billy Joel and like the Eagles and sure. Journey and uh, and the Cars and Peter Gabriel. Sure. That's sort of like my bread and butter, that kind of music. When it really comes down to it, I'm very, those are my guys, like melody oriented pop rock music. That's right. like here, the stuff here. that I grew up on and that's the stuff that that I still am attracted to. And when I work on like School of Rock, for example, right now, there are modern examples of that. Like I think this band Panic at the Disco is like a really good oh, sure. sort of modern example of something very melodic. Right. And I think it's sort of like starting to come back. Like the sort of one note pop vibe, I think it might might be over which I sort of am happy about. <laughs> yeah. But not that I don't have a use for that also, but like, you know, that, like Panic at the, at the Disco, we did we did a cover of their song Victorious, which is just like oh, sure. an insane pop and rock song. Right. And, uh, Almost like so operatic I, or something. Yeah, it's just wild and, and so fun. And like there's all these ideas and there's not even really like a chorus. It's like I don't even, it doesn't matter. It's just got so much like vitality. I am exposed to a lot of new stuff from that show and my children and stuff like that. And then in terms of scoring, uh, I don't know. I love, I, I could tell you two things. I love Thomas Newman. I think he's yeah, the best. Totally. I think he might be the best thing ever made. <laughs> and then I also love what Trent Reznor does with Atticus Ross. I sure. think that's just wonderful wonderful stuff and then you know there's this guy named joe trapanese who i actually oh, know yeah. and he does stuff with 
with like he did something with um with Daft Punk. They did uh Tron, what right? the, they did Tron. And then he did this other movie that was a what was the name of that other oh, electronic that Tom Cruise thing, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Oblivion. That's a, Oblivion. Okay, that's a great score. Yeah. And I've never talked with him about this, but I just think it's like an amazing fusion of orchestra and electronic and it's very melodic. Right. And I I personally love to hear, you know, these electronic scores that are sort of fused with whatever some organic instruments and orchestra and whatever. To me that's like really the future of film scoring. Sure. We've all heard a hundred piece orchestra behind a big action movie a thousand times. And there's only so many like big horn lines you can hear before you're like, okay, I get it. And <laughs> I think that the electronic scoring universe is awesome. Right. <laughs> like, I think it has a lot to, to offer. Uh, and I think we've only sort of like touched the tip of the iceberg on that. Yeah. I think once there's that like ringtone level hit, just that melody that becomes like a cultural thing that's in that palette. I yeah, mean, that maybe could change everything. And you know, we haven't heard like the Star Wars version of that yet. Right. I right. also really loved the score to Gravity, which was yeah, that Steven guy who Price? Yeah, and like just before that he was a music editor and he came <laughs> in and just totally nailed this thing in a way that was I think very unexpected. Mm -hmm. The way that he used the orchestra was interesting and and the the way that it was so different than 2001 for example right, right. was i thought just awesome and i loved i loved what he did on that yeah that was great yeah right and nobody i don't know why it's like he won the oscar no one right. like cared like it was like i i don't even understand it i thought it was so yeah. great and and in some ways like a revolutionary way to use an orchestra in a movie but sure nobody cared <laughs> but maybe that's not true i'm sure he works all the time. He's fine. He's on some really big movie that's about to come out, but no, I can't remember what it is. Yeah, I'm but... sure he's doing fine. <laughs> well, I'm curious. You mentioned earlier about some of your work in games. Uh, I know you did work on some stuff in like the Spyro series. Yes. How did that project come together, and what was your experience writing for games, particularly in that are there any similarities to writing for games as there are to writing for TV or film in your experience? First of all, writing for games is really fun. It's it's a little more open of a world, even still. Hmm, sure. There there's a little less pressure somehow, or at least there was then. Like I haven't done it now for like at least ten years. I haven't done a game because once I got into TV, it sort of like took over. But from my experience then, basically we would get an assignment and be like, okay, this level is like this this is like what happens at the beginning and then here's some stuff that happens in the middle and then by the end, this is like the big thing. And we would basically write like a four-minute piece of enormous orchestral music. And then we, we could like strip out parts and do, you know, do stuff with the technology where like you strip out an element here and then you add a thing here. And stuff, right? Yeah, you would do stems and stuff like that. But outside of that, it was just like write a cool piece of music for four minutes. That was awesome. When I think about it in retrospect, it's like we nobody gave us any notes about anything. We would just like do it, and they'd be like, "Cool, that right. was it." So it was really fun from that perspective. Especially th this is mainly the Spyro stuff I'm talking about. We did three Spyros, and you know there were like however many levels on each one, 
And then outside of those, there were like these little in-game movies, like sure. FMVs, they call them, full motion video. And those would those we would score, right? And then out, and then there was the sort of level music. I, it was super fun. We like recorded a real choir and like these enormous orchestral brass sections. I mean, it was oh, cool. totally fun. And and also the schedule is like totally different than television. Obviously, like television, you're cranking out a score like every week. Once the show is going, you're like you're really it's it can be really brutal schedule wise and you just sort of have to like man up and do it right and it usually involves some help from like everyone that you know but the game world it was just lower stress in terms of the schedule you'd have you know x amount of weeks to like generate x amount of music instead of like you get the cut of the show in television and you got to have the score two days later a, there's no time for like getting a lot of live players. Like I often will have live players, and I'll ship it off the second I'm done writing, and they'll record it themselves and send it back to me, and then I'll mix it in like at the last second. Wow. But games aren't like that. You have more time. Sure. Uh, you know, it's often a more uh, epic scope, so you sort of try to get a larger group of people together to record it. Anyway, games are fun. Like they were super fun, and I would I would do another one in a second. a little bit better suited probably to being a television composer just because I like to like go to work like a normal person every day <laughs> right. and uh, go home and see my family and then get up the next day and do the same thing as opposed to like, you know, getting to crunch time on the video game and like living in the studio for three weeks. That's like, that's no fun. <laughs> Yeah, that whole industry still seems kind of on the computer science clock, very little personal life and living in the office kind of a thing. Well, they all do that. They're crazy. They're crazy <laughs> about their jobs. And the people that I've known that work in games, like not in music, but like just that work in games in general, they're like they live their job. They're there all the time, especially and then especially like when they're getting close to like a delivery it's brutal. It can be really brutal. And it's not like there's not times like that in television. Those like we just did that time. It happens once a year. It's when it's network pilot season. And you just know in the month of April, you're going to it's like finals. You're up all night <laughs> and you uh, and you have to turn things around really fast and there's like a million revisions and it's just sure. really crazy for a month while they're making these pilots and seeing what gets picked up. So you talk about being able to live a more like normal human schedule. So how many shows are you juggling right now, Gabriel, like at the moment? Uh, you've caught me at an opportune time or an inopportune time. <laughs> I, I, I have two shows that just got canceled. Uh, Rosler sorry, just yeah. got canceled and Dr. Ken just got canceled. I just finished a two-year run of Dawn of the Croods, which is 52 episodes of animated show for DreamWorks. And Rectify finished like in the fall. So I had four shows that were going that were like pretty active for like several years that are now done. Modern Family got picked up for two more seasons and I'm 
in the middle of season three of School of Rock. And that's basically what's going on. I have other small things happening. Sure. Uh, I have a little movie that I just finished called Humor Me, uh, which is going to be at the LA Film Festival in June. And um, but those are oh, and then I have a new pilot. One of the pilots that I did got picked up, and that's called Nine J. It's a comedy. But I'm not starving. I have four shows. Okay, everything's okay. fine. Speaking of those shows, uh, could you talk about your work on School of Rock? You said you're working on the third season. Yes, School of Rock is awesome. It's a great gig. It's super fun. It's a really unusual gig, and I feel really lucky to have gotten it because. It's like a quadruple job because you have to write songs, you have to produce songs that are not your own songs, sure. you have to make an album out of those songs. Then you score the show, and then there's also this whole sort of like live playing aspect of it. Uh. And um, like the kids have to play the music or at least look like they're playing the music, and, and they do have to learn the songs. So I'm I'm working in pre-production, making a song before they shoot it, and we're in the middle of all that right now. So like I just did, we just did a cover of "You're My Best Friend" by Queen, oh, and that's actually pretty unusual. The the show leans toward much more current, contemporary covers when they do covers. Oh, so the kids come in here every weekend. Basically, this is what happens. It's totally insane. On Friday, on Thursday, which is tomorrow, we will have a production meeting. And we will talk about the episode that they're going to shoot the following week. Usually on Thursday, I find out about stuff that I've already got in the works. So like there is a new song in this episode that shoots next week that we have to record the vocals for on Saturday. So I like usually tweak this song that I literally wrote on Monday <laughs> while they were shooting last week's song. They have like some notes that I'm going to get tonight, which is Wednesday night. Tomorrow, after the production meeting, I'll address those notes a little bit and sort of produce up the song, like with guitars and drums and everything. Then Saturday, the kids are in here singing it. So I have to get them the sort of more produced version of the song as early as possible Friday so they can have like a, a little time with the song to learn it. Also, Saturday afternoon, I have like a team of... Uh, teachers basically guitar teacher keyboard teacher drum teacher that come here and teach the kids how to basically play this song that didn't wow. exist before monday and wow. so it's totally insane <laughs> like Man, and that, that's, that's just the pre-production part so then on monday tuesday and wednesday they shoot the song and the kids have pre-recorded parts of it and often they'll play parts of it live. Like sometimes there are like sort of more interactive parts of the song where like it can't just sound like it's a record playing. Sure, anyway, sure. so then once we're in post-production, I usually wind up making two different versions of the song. There's like a show version that sounds more like it's being played live and then there's like a record version that's more like a record. And the record version usually is tinges more towards like the more modern production and the show version tinges more towards the sort of classic rock instrumentation. Anyway, it's brutal. Then after all that, we, <laughs> uh, after all that, I score the show and then we're done. Basically. When you're scoring, do you tend to borrow from 
the if it's like an existing song or if it's something you've written do you kind of hint at some of the melodies and stuff from it in the score if it's an if it's an original song and it makes sense to do that then i will do that but like when you're licensing a song first of all i can't do that right because uh like i can't just be like specific i can't have like a cue that sounds exactly like you're my best friend when it's right before you're my best friend the song because we've only licensed the song for this particular use. Right. So they would have to pay another big chunk of money for me to then make another version of it. That said, we do do that in specific instances. Like in this episode with You're My Best Friend, there's like a more full rock version. And then the pianist from the band, the keyboard player, plays like a sort of stripped down, more mellow version of it later in the episode. But it's sort of written into the episode. So they, they own the license for both of those uses. But I'm not really allowed to like use those themes earlier in the episode unless it's something that i wrote do you end up needing either because of the terms of the license or design of the show do you end up needing to get the production and at least one of those versions kind of close to those original records like you got to have that whirly part i suppose but uh we don't have the whirly part okay we're usually very free to do whatever we want in terms of the production. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with your work in Modern Family, notably the very famous uh, main theme. Can you talk about a little bit about your experience working on Modern Family and specifically that Modern Family theme? Yes. This is how that happened. It was totally crazy. It was really my first foray into television under my own name. And this was that I did this pilot and this guy, this director of the pilot was like, hey, come to the set. The creators don't really think that there's going to be room for music in this show, but I think there will be. So I went to the set and I met them and they were like, cool, whatever. <laughs> and and the, but, but meanwhile, the director, who was like a friend of mine, was like, hey, I, I promise you we're going to need at least at the very minimum, we're going to need a, a theme and then there were like a couple other spots where they needed like a little thing here and there. And had he worked on Arrested, the director? No, he okay. had worked on this show called Carpoolers. He was a young guy. He's like my same age. And this was like his first big like directorial debut as, uh, as a, on a pilot. So he sent me off and he was like, you should make a theme. Make, a, make the theme kind of like this. He was like, it should just be like a big, huge, like, you know, big band kind of thing and like really fun and exciting. So I went and made one and he was like, cool, can you make it more like this? And I was like, cool. And I made a little, made some changes and I sent him the changes and he was like, great. And then he played it for those guys and they were like, great. And then, (laughs) uh, and the network was like, great. Then one of the creators, there's two creators on Modern Family, one of them wanted something completely different. He was like, can you try doing this other thing that's completely different? And what he wanted was sort of more of like a heartwarming, like acoustic guitar based kind of thing. So I did that and he was like, eh, I don't know. And he was like, try something more like this. And I was like, did that 25 versions later. <laughs> and after the show had been airing for seven episodes already, he called it quits it had already aired with the other version, which was basically version number four um, uh-huh. of what initially was. It's basically the same as it was, but like you could, I have all of the early versions and they're, they're very similar to what's on the air now, but 
like one of them probably has like a yeah instead of a hey or something like that. <laughs> it's like those kinds of changes and like different versions of the things that happen in between the haze, like the like that stuff I did in different ways on the early different versions. And then there's these like 20 other things that are completely different. If you dropped it into where the main title lives in the show now, you'd be like, that just doesn't make any sense. But, you know, that's also because we're used to what is there and what has lived there for so long. When you were writing it, were you writing it to that whole visual sequence of them, like, holding I the was, pictures yes. and stuff? I had that. They had that idea. And I sent them an early version right away so that they could then cut to it. And that was very helpful because then they, you know, the timing is, is obviously a big part of it. And that is pretty unusual. That's pretty, it's pretty rare to get the chance to have that timing work out. It often happens that like the visuals and the music people just like can't connect for whatever reason. Sure. And somehow we got lucky and we did connect and it all worked out. Are, are those your haze then on the... Uh... That's me. It's me going, hey. I'm like, hey. That is me, and, you know, I would have had a bunch of guys do it, <laughs> but I didn't know what I was doing, so I just recorded myself a bunch. And also, you know, it was unclear. It was like I considered the whole thing to be a demo at the time, and and I gradually, like, made it sound better as I realized that we were getting closer to having it be real. Sure. And I added, like, there was, like, the real trumpets then in the end and and some real drums that happened in the end and... But the vocals never changed, and I tried to change them, and they didn't want me to change them. <laughs> so it kind of started as like this sort of mock-up with your vocals and maybe yeah. some real elements, and then you got to replace some of those. As yeah, exa exactly. It started as the vocal, and then all the drums were fake, all the brass was fake. And then I had this great trumpet player come in named Tom Marino, who I had known from David Schwartz, because David would always hire him. And uh, he's like in just a blazing trumpet yeah. player, so he's all over it. And then my original drummer from uh, my solo days, Adam Marcello, who now plays with Katy Perry, uh, is the drummer. Oh, that's cool. And yeah, the trumpet playing is so great because it ends up having, I know you're saying like maybe a big band idea in the conception, but it ends up having more of the salsa thing, which is kind of, it seems to tie yeah. into Jay and Gloria maybe. I don't know. Yes. Although, well, it is that, I guess, in the end, but it definitely was not conscious to do that. It was really more about just like the, wailing trumpet whether or not it was right. salsa it's interesting you talked about the uh, creators of the show not envisioning space for music originally and i think when you think of modern family now it is difficult to picture where music can pop in but you do continue to compose music for the show would you say it's mostly in the sort of the last two minutes is that usually the spot where where yeah well there, there's two things that i do at this point, there's this section of the at the end of the song where there's like a montage and there's a voiceover. And I always call it the sort of like wrap it up in a bow moment. Sure. And I know that sort of like cheapens it, but it, it is this sort of like beautiful moment. And that moment needs needs music. And that happened in the pilot. We did that in the pilot. So essentially, I mean, when you often when you work on a pilot, there's a musical concept where people who make pilots and the people who make tv shows they're like well, we want all the music to sound like this 
and that just did not happen on Modern Family. There was there was a direction for the theme, and there was a completely different direction for this wrap it up in a boat thing that happens at the end. Right. You know, it sounds like well, duh, like that's not that complicated, but ultimately they're unrelated. The theme says this is a comedy, but it's also it has these heartwarming moments. And, that is the world in which Modern Family lives. And I think that it's, that's why one of the main reasons it's been as successful as it has is that it has, you feel something when you watch it, often. It's not just a comedy. It has real emotion that uh, is an important part of the show. So that happens at the end. Anytime you hear any other kind of music in the show that is not necessarily score, I'm usually doing that too. Like if there's a song or if there's like a, there was one episode like last season where we did like an Apollo 13 kind of thing and he like builds this rocket and there's all kinds of really random stuff that happens. Like they go to the spa, there's spa music playing or there's like, you know, they're doing, they're like break dancing and there's like break dancing music playing. I do all that. And that's really fun. It keeps the show fun. It keeps me being useful on the show, which is always good. I like to feel useful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like the demands for that show are kind of elastic, I suppose, because there aren't yeah. there even some episodes where maybe there isn't even a wrap-it-up moment. I probably worked on two-thirds of the episodes this season, and the other third, they either reuse something, because uh, now we have this big library of those kinds of cues. Oh, I suppose. And um, so sometimes they'll reuse them if they find one that they feel like fits just right. And then there are other times when there's literally no music. If you watch it, like, the, you know, we don't do like little transitions. It's not it's not like a traditional comedy in that way. We don't do like the little... <laughs> we, do, we just don't do that at all. Right. And I think the show is better off for it. But it's also like for a lot of the comedic beats of that show, like the punchline is it cutting to commercial or yeah, or the like the scene. silence right, right after the joke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like that's what they use instead of music, and and I think it's very effective in that way. Well, I'm glad we've talked quite a good deal about some of your scoring experience. Uh, I want to move back a little bit to some of the band stuff. Your band, The Rescues, has been a going concern for nearly a decade with, uh, as you mentioned, many of your songs placed in a slew of popular shows. How did that band originally come together? Uh, we played at a wedding. There were three of us at the time, solo singer-songwriters, me and Adrian and uh, Kyler England, and we were all playing shows in, around, in and around L.A. And uh, there's a guy named Billy Lehman who was like, hey, I like you guys individually. Will you... <laughs> sort of get together and play at my wedding. And mm. he was offering compensation. And we, being the smart businessmen that we were at the time, said, okay. And um, after we played that show, it was, it was great. We had these rehearsals, and we played with a band, like a backing band. And then we started writing a couple songs together. And we were sort of liking what we wrote. And then we just recorded them and we made like a sort of early album that was sort of half original songs that we had written as a trio and half uh, new versions of songs we had done individually. 
Gotcha. Then we were going to go on a tour, and I was really concerned that I was not going to be able to go on this tour because I had, it was like the second season of Modern Family and I had this new baby and it was, I was like, I just cannot, how can I, this is crazy. Right. So we were like, okay, let's get Rob Giles. He's perfect. He's a great singer. He's a great writer. This will be great. If I can go on the tour, we'll just do it as a quartet and the band will be a quartet and that'll be awesome. And that's what ended up happening. I did go on the tour because whatever misgivings I had went away. And we went on the tour as a quartet and it was so great. And then we came back from that and started writing songs as a quartet. And that went really well. And we wrote a bunch of songs, basically our our first record. And we played, we, it was a really interesting time. We wrote like crazy during the week and we played a show every week after we were done writing. And so we were playing these songs that were like literally hot off the press and we like had the lyrics in front of us. We like barely oh, knew cool. how to play the songs. And by the end of these, this like four week stint, we had like a whole record. We played the whole record live and we had gotten a lot of attention. And then we got like a big fancy manager and then we got one of these songs on a TV show and then we got another song on a TV show. And then at some point, we had a song placed on Grey's Anatomy in the season finale. It was like the holy grail of, of music, <laughs> of song placement. It was like the season finale of a huge show. It was snowing. It was Christmas. People were dying. It was every, and, oh, and, and all the sound went down. Oh, and man. you just heard the song. There's sure. like no dialogue, snow, Christmas, dead people, huge hit show, <laughs> season finale. It was everything. And so a bunch of people bought the song uh, sure. on iTunes. And then like literally the next day I had a message on my machine here, which I still have like a machine here, which is insane, <laughs> uh, from some like intern at Universal Republic, which is a record label. And I was like, this is weird because I, I – like I don't really keep track of like sales and stuff like that. I didn't know what was going on, but they keep track. <laughs> I told the manager guy, he was like, "Oh, okay." And then this manager, who he had been like Avril Lavigne's manager, he's a great guy. His name is Peter Leake, very good manager. And he sort of took us around to all the labels, and we played for everybody, and we ended up signing with that initial label that called that first time oh, cool. and then we did our thing that's that's uh that's basically the story of the rescues and then the most recent iteration of that is we toured we did all the stuff we put a song on the radio it didn't go and then we were basically let go by the label mutually we were like can we go make a record and not be on your label and so we did that uh that was our second record blah blah love and war which is really our third record because we had like a record before our label record and then we just made a new record as a trio because Rob has left the band in like at the end of last year. So now we're back to being a trio and we have this new record that Adrian produced and it's awesome. And we're going to play shows in June. Oh, cool. And so the band still exists, but it's just not as um, it's not as active as it was then. You know, we still do stuff and we're in rehearsals right now uh, for these shows. But. It's not as crazy as it was then, but it's still a, a big part of our lives. Yeah, we particularly enjoyed that song, uh, Can't Stand the Rain. Okay. What can you, what can you tell secret. us about, about that one? Well, I can tell you that we're going to play it 
in June, and we're gonna have a marching band. Oh, <laughs> cool! It's gonna be the greatest thing. It's like bonk, 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 bonk. It's gonna be so great. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But that, but I always felt like that song was very like emblematic of the band in general. It was like a lot of like creative energy pushing and pulling and fighting and like light and dark and and that song kind of has all that it's like fun and serious right. and it's, it's like the dichotomy of life is what the rescues is all about pull the curtains though the sun had given up my blackened heart Next in line, waste my day away just staring at the ceiling. My memories keep leaking in. Can't stand the rain. Can't stand the rain. Can't stand the rain. Well, it's like you were mentioning earlier, it's just a really great melody. Ultimately, yeah, it comes down to to the melody of it and uh, that song is very like sort of piano based we have a lot of songs that are not really piano based that are more guitar based but that one is sort of more of like my kind of harmonies and like a little more intricate than some of the other more sort of like epic sounding and more like sort of traditional rock right uh, more the sort of like chord plane kind of yeah exactly exactly can't stand the rain is more of an intricate kind of thing well hopefully the cancellation wounds aren't too fresh with dr ken but as short and minimal as it is we really enjoyed that title theme from the beginning, was that always going to be such a tiny amount of real estate that you would have there? With, it's with so funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> the Dr. Ken theme, which I have literally never been asked about before. Okay. Um, my initial idea was that it was going to be a gospel choir. Because I just <laughs> thought that would be really funny to have a gospel choir <laughs> singing Dr. Ken's name. Uh, just because <laughs> yeah. I thought that was funny. That just because cool. I, I know him and we know his history from The Hangover and like he's right. like a sort of hip-hop gangster Asian dude. And, I, and it, that has nothing that. to do really with his show, but I just liked the idea of it. So the thing that I sent him initially was, bom, bom, So it had, it had oh, that's cool. me singing these vocals and I was like, dude, this is going to be so great. We're going to get a gospel choir in here. It's going to oh, be awesome. Man. And he was like, I love it. Can you take out the vocals? <laughs> so I so that is what you get. But it was going to be like this big vocal. <laughs> I thought it was so funny. He did not think it was funny. Well, yeah, if that leaked its way on the internet and lighted the cancellation, that would be Yes, that would be yes. <laughs> it was always like a 10-second little spot that you had. For it that. was always short, yeah. It was a tiny little thing. And that happens like more, especially on network television, it happens more often than not because they got to sell that real estate. Right. It seems like it's the era of like the cold open and then the little button of the joke. And Yeah, as opposed to like if you're on a, like a cable show, 
can do a main title for a minute. You, you know, you can be you can be Game of Thrones and like have a huge epic experience just for the theme, and then you get into the show because it doesn't matter the length of the show of the show doesn't matter. Right, it's downloadable, right. so you know they're they're not like worried about fitting it on to this exact amount of time. Um, and sorry, you mentioned the canceled shows this year, but uh, some oh my good, God. some good ones Brutal. in that mix. So Rosewood, really interesting, not only title, but kind of music throughout that. It seems like really trying to capture the spirit of Miami. Uh, what are some of your memories really putting that material together or kind of conceiving of the palette for that for that show? Well, that's exactly that's exactly what it was. I always thought of Rosewood as like a hip hop procedural, but there's also this sort of there's a total Miami thing that happened. And we and we actually infused more of it in the second season and really sort of went for that a little bit more. And then as the stories became a little bit more serious and a little bit more involved, it sort of gradually started veering more towards like a little bit of darkness. The Miami vibe is like super fun and has a ton of energy, but like it doesn't really make a lot of sense when you start getting into people dead and uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, and like, you know, people with their guns drawn and stuff like that. But it's great for, like, blasting open the excitement factor. And so what would you sort of wind up happening is it would sort of start here with the level of Miami and gradually the Miami would go away and the sort of procedural would kind of take over. We, it was definitely conscious to include that and, and we were not afraid of it. And uh, what will happen sometimes is on a show like that that has a particular setting, you know, it's in Miami. They'll be like, we really don't want to be Miami about it. And you're like, well, wh why? Why can't we be Miami? It's in Miami. Why can't we be Miami? And so we went for it, and that was I was happy that they were into that. I imagine that was a show where there was like a lot more work every week. So much work! Oh my god, it's brutal. It's like uh, you'd go into spot on a Friday, and we'd have to have the music to them by like Wednesday, so that they could mix the following Friday. It was basically a week. You basically have a week turnaround, and every once in a while you get a week off, like every like six or seven episodes. Sure. And um, and it's a lot like that's why these network shows are so they're difficult because and, and not everybody is well suited to them. There's 22 of them. Right. And once you start, you don't stop until those 22 are done with like a couple of breaks in between. Well, so, imaginally, you just absolutely have to have a really solid producing like mixing background because like you said you have to just turn it into a final product so quickly and... yeah there basically is no like sort of mix stage you kind of like sure you're basically mixing it as you go like as you're writing the cue you're mixing the music and making sure it all sounds good and then you move on to the next cue and 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 then if you add live instrumentation throughout like we'll often add a guitar on that show we'd finish the writing send it for guitar put in the guitar and everything else was pretty much mixed. But I, I tend to, in general, mix as I go with almost everything that I work on. When I left David Schwartz's studio, 
I went to work at Chris and Becky's studio, Becky, who I work with now, they built a studio. I was like, if you build this studio, I'll just like be the studio guy. And so I worked there and like brought bands in and produced bands and produced all kinds of and mixed stuff. I used that as sort of my training ground and it has served me well because it means that I don't have to sort of have a separate mixing stage for all the stuff that I work on. I just sort of mix it as I go and I can mix it myself and, and it doesn't take me a long time. That said, there are some things I don't mix myself. Uh, mainly the songs in school of rock I send out to have mixed by professionals. Sure. And mixing a song, mixing a big song that's going to be like released on iTunes. It's, you know, I I want it to sound better than what I am capable of mixing. Well, and it's just taking that much more off of your plate on a show that has so much going on. Yeah. There's plenty of other stuff for me to be dealing with on that show. That is for sure. Now, In general, like all your productions just sound so good and they, they just have that, if I can, like almost that sort of like legit, like of the record making world. Are you using a lot of outboard gear and stuff or, or, or is the workflow just, I can show you what I'm using. Oh yeah. Ready? You want to see it? Here it is. Yeah, There's nothing it. here. Okay. <laughs> this is my outboard gear. This is it. You are looking at it. Okay. This so is, I have, these are, these are some preamps. Some Avalons. Okay. These are some Neve preamps. This is, there's some APIs. These are a couple of distressors and these are a couple of Avalons. I have some really good microphones. I have some really good preamps. Sure. And I have a bunch of instruments, and I can record those instruments, and I can make things in the box, and then I mix in the box, and that's it. I used to have a mixing board, and I got rid of it because I wasn't using it. Yeah. No, I can understand. And you've got to be able to recall everything and recall it so That's fast. the other thing. Yeah. That's exactly right. If, I have, if I'm on, like, version 5 of, like, 1M34 from episode 5, <laughs> blah, 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 i got to just be able to double-click on it and open it up and have it sound the way that it sounded when I wrote it. Otherwise, I'm going to be in big trouble, and I'll spend all day long trying to recreate, you know, something that I don't have time to be spending time on. Right. <laughs> Without getting too detailed, I'm curious about this because it sometimes feels like TV stuff is just so loud. How loud? Like do you, TV music, you mean? Yeah, like how loud do you feel like you need to produce things? In ter- yeah, just in terms of loudness and limiting and stuff like that. Well, I almost, I almost don't even master most of my score. Songs I do master, and I crank up the jams just because <laughs> the the sound of a mastered record is the sound that we are used to and that we like and that I like. Whereas the sound of score is often not the same as that. Like it needs to sound good, but ultimately 75% of it is going to live under dialogue. So they're just going to turn it down and go like that. So there's no real reason to smash it like that unless the particular kind of music requires that. Even on School of Rock, the songs that are within the show I don't master that version because it doesn't sound like they're playing it as much as it does when I leave it unmastered. Anyway, so score, I just feel like it's not really necessary to master it. I used to master everything, and I've gotten away from it because as I watch what I've written on TV and what other people have written, I'm like, this, you know, it doesn't, there's no reason for it. It doesn't sound better mastered than it does unmastered. In some ways, sounds better unmastered because it, it can live at a louder level unmastered because it's not as bright and harsh. Right, for sure. This is why often the songs sound very different than the score because they're mastered and, and we're supposed to hear them in that way 
and they sort of take over and they're often like replacing what would be dialogue or whatever. Yeah, that's interesting. As soon as commercials cut in, they're always sort of like brick walled, at least used to be. In the yeah, last couple of years. exactly. It's, like, it's so stark that contrast. Well, that's like a choice from the networks and the ad agencies saying, sure. or the, or the, the clients who they're making the ads for are saying, we need our ads to be loud. So uh, we don't care what you do with your shows, but like the ads better be loud because like we want people to be listening. That's what that's about. It's not about the um, the sort of aesthetic coming in and out of it. Or yeah, yeah, like targets. Like you know, you better crank our ad. Yeah. <laughs> so they get their, they get their ad cranked. You touched on a couple of projects that are in the works right now. Anything in particular you'd be interested in uh, plugging or talking nine about? Nine J. Nine J. Next season, Nine J. On who is in that? Nine J. It's a guy named Mark Feuerstein. It's CBS. Okay. Mark Feuerstein. And David Walton, who was in, uh, he was in Bent, which is a show that I did several years ago, which I loved. And he was in uh, About a Boy recently. He's super hysterical. Oh, and then it's got this classic old guy, Elliot Gould, who also happens to be in this indie movie I did called Humor Me. It's funny. People are calling it the Jewish Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> and it's funny. He like was an actor in a stupid TV show called Bad Cop. And he goes to live back in New York because he's going like, to get back in touch with his actory self and like go do theater. And he gets an apartment between his parents who are in 9K and his brother and his brother's family who are in 9L. And he's, he's 9J. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. I think it's pretty good. Now, uh, where can our listeners follow the latest exploits of Gabriel Mann? GabrielMann.com. Exploits. Exploitative. I'm exploited <laughs> there. <laughs> well, we really appreciate your time, Gabriel. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. My pleasure. This is a pleasure, man. All the best. All right. Thanks, guys. that was fun thanks again to gabriel for coming on the show and talking to us we had an absolute blast we hope you did as well that about wraps up this week of underscore we'll be back next time with another film we'll be jumping back into another month-long discussion and we can't wait for you to see what we've got cooked up Please feel free to pass along any thoughts, questions, ideas, concerns to our email, the underscore show at gmail.com. If you're at all enjoying the show, please consider rating and leaving a review at Apple Podcasts. That helps new listeners discover the show. And a special thanks to those of you who have already left a review. Absolutely. You can follow us on all manner of social media, Facebook. We have a YouTube channel where... We should probably get back into the habit of posting more videos, but I know we'll get to that soon enough. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. Until next time, everybody. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.